You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking with Margaret Conkey, Meg Conkey, who is joining us via Zoom. We're excited to talk with Meg about her career as an archaeologist and especially about her book, Engendering Archaeology. But before we introduce Meg, Crystal, I want to check in with you. How has your week been and the week here at Extreme History? Oh, thanks, Nancy. It's been good. I was on a little bit of a road trip this week, which I always love to get out of town and travel a little bit. Um, We are working on a documentary called The Story of Us, which is about some of Montana's historic women. And so we went to do some film scouting um, in Helena, which was really fun. And we went to our state capital, our Montana state capital, to look at that area because when one of the women that we're highlighting is actually, she was one of our first legislators. She was part of the House of Representatives so um, for our state legislature. So it was really fun to go and kind of look at the Capitol and through her eyes and kind of see see it as she would When have, was she in the legislature? Yeah, good question. She was there. Um, her first term was in 1919. Wow. Yeah, so, so early on she got very elected. Early That's on, impressive. Very early on. She ran in 1918, was elected and served in 1919, and then served two terms. So, nice. Um, so it was great. Did Montana women have the vote then? Yes. So Montana women got the vote in 1914. Okay. And that is, of course, when she decided to run. Um, her and another woman were in the legislature at that time, and there was this beautiful photograph of um, the the 1919 legislators, and there's all these men, and then there's just these two lone women, and one was a Democrat and one was a Republican. Oh, goodness, and so, that's great. <laughs> so it was neat to see that photo and just to you know think about her experience there as as this legislator, one of the the first w- women legislators. So it was really it was really fun. So that's going to be a great segment of this documentary. Yeah, Yeah. that'll be wonderful. Yeah. So that was the that was the highlight of my week. My my daughter did have her wisdom teeth pulled. Whoa! Everyone's getting them out now. Oh my gosh! (laughs) I feel like everyone I talk to, it's that age, right? Yeah. Yeah. How's she doing? She's doing it. You know, the first day it was rough. Um, This is day three, and so her cheeks are still a little little puffy, but she's doing better today. When I came to work this morning, she was ready to be on her own. And so, yeah, so she's doing okay. How about you, Nancy? How was your week? Yeah, it's been um, incredibly busy down at the shop. Um, But my daughter's, since she's done with high school, she's back uh, working in and and helping in the back. And we have a whole bunch of new wonderful t-shirts in, some that have 
the Bozeman scene on them, and they're the only ones that actually have a downtown Bozeman scene. And then oh, we nice. have... I'll have to check those out. Yeah, and wait. we have our new Yellowstoner ones that, that say chronic fan of public lands. Oh, and that's I'll have to come popular. Yeah, too. so they're out, yeah. uh, they're out on the street. And I started back um, teaching again. So this Great. is my summer online class, Introduction to Anthropology. So in... Six short weeks, I cover the four fields of anthropology and have them put it all together and um, and hope that they remember. And it's actually, I've done it enough now that I, I really enjoy this course and the students seem to get a lot out of it, but it is kind of an intense six weeks for oh them. Oh boy, so, I bet it is. Oh, yeah. but you're such a good teacher. They love, uh, they'll love it. They'll well, love one of the students is a fan of the podcast, so oh, I, I, maybe they were trying to get an early A, but maybe that was I was appreciative for that. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So, so back to, back to our guest, Um, Meg, welcome. We're so glad to have you here today. Thanks. Really glad to be here too. Wonderful. Great, (laughs) great. And we, so far we have a very clear Zoom connection. We hope that that stays true through the rest of the podcast. Um, We want to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Um, so I am going to read a bio that was actually published in an interview with you in 2013. So if we get to the end and there's more to update, please go ahead and let us know. But I really loved the way this focused on a lot of the topics that we'd like to cover today. Margaret Conkey is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Born in 1944, she graduated from Mount Holyoke College in 1965 and received a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in 1978. Before moving to Berkeley in 1987, she taught at San Jose University and at SUNY Binghamton. Conkey is an archaeologist of the Paleolithic and has conducted research in the French Pyrenees and on prehistoric art and symbolism. She's widely known for introducing feminist perspectives into archaeology with her 1984 article, Archaeology and the Study of Gender, co-authored with Janet Spector, as well as her 1991 book, Engendering the Past, Women and Prehistory, co-edited with Joan Jarrow. Both of those um, works, by the way, are were essential reading in graduate school when I was uh, getting my degree in archaeology. In addition to finding gender in the archaeological record, Conkey consciously practices feminist principles by sharing credit, acknowledging uncertainty, and taking steps to diffuse, rather than concentrate or control, power in the conduct of research. Conkey is the recipient of numerous awards, including Berkeley's Chancellor's Award for Advancing Institutional Excellence in 2009, the Award for Educational Initiatives in 2001, and honorary degrees from Mount Holyoke College and Bowdoin College. She has also served as the Executive Director of the Center for Digital Archaeology. Welcome, Meg. Thank you. Funny to hear something that was written in 2013. (laughs) (laughs) Some things have changed, and there actually were a couple of um, errors, slight errors in that I don't hold you accountable because you didn't write it, which is actually the title of the book that you wanted to concentrate on a little bit today, uh, which was called Engendering Archaeology, Women and Production in Prehistory. So it had a specific focus, and I think we'll probably come to the reason why we actually ended up having that particular focus on 
women and production in prehistory. Absolutely. Uh, which had a lot to do with how one gets grant proposals to hold a conference <clears throat> of this sort. Because, uh, of course, there you just can't go out and call your work any old thing. It has to have some resonance someplace with the powers that be, uh, which, of course, in the process of trying to get the field to think a little bit more broadly about the kinds of things we are doing and the kinds of people we want to have in our accounts and need to have in our accounts, you actually have to strategize. I think everybody's familiar with that. Yeah, that's so good to mention, though. That was just a, a little correction. And I guess I'd say there's been a lot that's happened in the last eight years uh, since that was written. Um, but I'm, I, we don't need to go there. That's oh, all right. I please don't need, catch us up. Yeah, please catch us up. Obituary, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> that, that's, that's good. So um, anyway, I'm happy to be here and uh, look forward to the questions you've got and uh, happy to try to talk a little bit about some of the kind of um, both the productive and chaotic things that I've um, been able to do, especially with my collaborators, because as you mentioned, um, at least the two doc two things you wanted to talk about a little bit today, both the Spectre and Conkey article, and then the co-authored, co-edited book with Joan Jarrow, are of course both um, collaborations. And most everything that I've done in my feminist research, explicit feminist and gender research, has been um, in as a co-author or collaboration we just it was too big of a topic to do alone and uh nobody could do it and the working together with uh, another with you know brilliant and motivated women like janet and uh, joan neither of whom are still with us on this earth um were really the some of the highlights of my of my career so mm. um i hold those kinds of things as well as other collaborations for example with my colleague ruth tringham here at Berkeley, um, as really the, those are the best things in life for those friendships and collaboration. Two minds are better than one, I can assure you. Um, wonderful, wonderful. So agree, so agree. I think that that is definitely how um, uh, the Extreme History Project works as well. We, we collaborate all the time, and um, we are always working together, and it's such a joy to be able to do that, um, to be able to work with like-minded people and to have that benefit of more than one mind. So I completely get what you're saying with that. So thanks for saying that as well. The fun thing about it is that, you know, at one level, we're like-minded, but then we also have different ideas, and so we sort of force each other to... Uh, rethink things and to uh, reevaluate and to maybe do something a little bit differently or incorporate something that we hadn't even thought about. So it's the combination of both um, harmony and difference that um, that makes things work. That is absolutely. So Meg, let's go back a little bit further in your past and talk a little bit about how you got into archaeology. We always ask our our guests how they got into their field of study. And I'm just I'm so curious to know how what led you into archaeology? Well, I'll say that it's a lot of serendipity. And, you know, this is what I often tell undergraduates who come in and think they have to have a master plan for their life or a mistress plan, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they, they have to have it all laid out before them. And I say, no, 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 no. You've got to have space for serendipity, for doing something that you just didn't even imagine. So I, I definitely was always interested in the past. I had gone to college 
as a um, and became a history major. We did not have anthropology at the time at Mount Holyoke College, um, although there certainly were anthropological kinds of things and other disciplines and so forth. Um, and I sort of focused in on ancient history and ancient art history. And this all, my archaeology adventure actually all begins with my mother, who, of course, like many mothers, said to me, starting in October of my junior year in college, well, I hope you've decided on get, how you're going to get a summer job, a summer job in October. I needed to think all the way ahead to the <laughs> summer of the next year. Um, anyway, I'm the eldest of five daughters, and I was the first one in college. I, by that time, I did have another sister who was already in college, and my father, we came from a very middle-class family. Both my parents were teachers, um, school teachers, um, uh, both of them, my mother in a friend's school and my father in a boys' prep school. Um, and so, you know, the money wasn't flowing for colleges, and so making sure I had a summer job was certainly expectable. So I posed this to my friends and colleagues in the dorm in college, like, can you believe it? My mother's pressuring me to get a summer job already. And they said, oh, we'll get you a summer job. Let's do that. And so they sort of cast about the room. And uh, one of my classmates came up with a magazine that had been sent to her by her church called Presbyterian Life. And so she said, oh, maybe this is this is about, you know, the Middle East and early religions and Christianity or whatever. I don't know if you're interested in that, but, you know, maybe they're doing something. So let's go through this magazine. So she flips through it. And there on one page was a little story about a guy from Princeton Theological Seminary who was going to be running an archaeological excavation in what was then the West Bank of Jordan. And she said, oh, let's write to him. Let, let's see if he has room for somebody. You, you kind of like this stuff. So they did. So we write to this guy, and he uh, happened, as happen happens, uh, to have had a young woman do a similar sort of thing the previous year. And he said, oh, she worked out so well. I'll take a chance on you. So <laughs> next thing I know, this guy says, you know, we're going to be, it, it was biblical archaeology, of course. So uh, but it was in Jordan. So my mother said, that's not a job. You, you have to pay to do this. You have to get an airplane ticket and all of this sort of stuff. Well, one thing led to another. One of my mother had gone to Mount Holyoke. And when she told her good friend, one of them, who was a single, very successful businesswoman, said, well, instead of giving my money to Mount Holyoke this year, I'll give some to Meg so she can do this trip. So oh, one thing led to another, fantastic. and I ended up going to what was then Jordan on the West Bank um, a, to an archaeological excavation. And I decided I really liked it. It was, of course, um, being a female uh, in a very, very uh, conservative town. Uh, I couldn't really do the excavation. And of course, as many people know about how excavations are run, sometimes it's all about local laborers. And these, of course, would all be men. So they're certainly not going to put a, you know, 19 year old girl, 20 year old girl out there uh, with these men. So I had was in charge of the pottery workshop on a rooftop where I could work with a very old man and a very young man, but I couldn't work with anybody, you know, sort of between the ages of 15 and 60. So, uh, so I did it and I liked it. I said, I wasn't very interested in the questions they were asking, but um, 
I liked it. I was outdoors. It was problem solving. And um, there was a lot of, you know, teamwork and collaboration and so forth. So I then went back to my senior year at Mount Holyoke and I applied for graduate schools to two places, uh, Penn and uh, the University of Chicago. Um, Neither of them would take me at the time in anthropology because I didn't have any anthropology, but the University of Chicago took me into the Oriental Institute, uh, which of course studied middle. And I thought I was interested in the origins of agriculture or something in the Middle East. Um, anyway, so off I went to graduate school and um, my father, of course, even though he himself had graduated as an undergraduate from the University of Chicago, um, he said, great, good, have a good time. You know, I can't, sorry, can't help you. So I had to sort of get my own money. So I got a job. Um, well, I had a summer job. I got, a, <laughs> I graduated from college, got a summer job um, through the New York Times. One of my classmates and I decided we weren't going home with our parents after graduation. That was just giving in to being a dependent. And we were independent women. <laughs> and so off we went to New York City. And back in the day, uh, which is a long time ago, uh, one actually got jobs to going to the classified ads in a newspaper. And so uh, she and I each got a job. She got a great job as a, a researcher for Time magazine. And I got a job as the librarian for the Winter Grand Foundation for Anthropological Research. Wow. Wow. I didn't even have any anthropology. And then when I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, at the time, the Winter Grand Foundation was supporting the journal Current Anthropology. So I got a job in graduate school as an editorial assistant for the Journal of Current Anthropology. And then one day, Saul Tax, who was then the editor of the journal Current Anthropology, asked me, well, how's it going over there in the Oriental Institute? And I go, well, you know, it's a lot about pottery and texts. And I'm kind of interested. And he said, oh, are you interested in people? Yeah. I said, yeah, <laughs> get your stuff together. You belong in anthropology. Mm-hmm. And so they tra- mm-hmm. I transferred over to anthropology. So mm-hmm. it's all of that serendipity. I mean, it was just. Wow, that's amazing. All serendipity. Yeah. Right? So things Absolutely. were going yeah. Went in the right direction, and then I w- then there I was in an anthropology department and doing archaeology, and so, such a good that, one too that, at <laughs> University of Chicago. Yeah, yeah fantastic, yeah. a great place to make that transition. Um, so, Meg, we are are really interested in your role in really um, changing the way gender is understood or focused on in archaeology and, and also feminism in archaeology. And so we, we want to ask you about that, but I want to go back a little bit and kind of set the stage for some of our listeners. For me, when I've, when I've taught about anthropology and we talk about, um, trying to get at gender and what archaeology was like back in the day. Um, they, the, the 1966 conference, Man the Hunter conference, is something that always comes up. And that was at the University of Chicago. And that was the new archaeology, sort of the beginning of, you know, Binford and Julian Stewart, Colin Turnbull, Marshall Sollins, just the really big names in sociocultural um, anthropology and archaeology coming together to try to understand sort of our deep history as humans and what we could get at. And of course, the name of the conference now just sounds kind of shocking, but it, it sounds to me like 
that ended up being a turning point in this awareness afterwards, especially for a lot of women in the field, that there were all of these assumptions that were um, being made and not explicitly addressed about men's roles and women's roles and how far back those could be projected into the past and if we were even looking at those. And it, it, it that androcentric bias um, from our own culture was at work. And it it seems to me like as we were going through the 60s and the 70s culturally, as feminism was was gaining traction and we were getting more women in the field, um, it, it seemed to sort of open the possibility. So by the time you and Janet Spector wrote and published on the topic in 1984, Archaeology and the Study of Gender, that we previously mentioned, um, I'm interested in understanding where you were at, given that, you know, you you went back to school, went from history into thinking ancient history into anthropology and archaeology, knowing the, you know, what had been going on in the field, who who were your mentors? Were there women involved? What, um, what allowed you to really start focusing and articulating about feminism in the discipline and archaeology of gender? And, and what needed to happen? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of story here, but if, I think maybe the short uh, version uh, would be that um, I was at the women, at the Man the Hunter conference. I was course, wondering if you I, were there. Yeah. I, was, I was working for Current Anthropology at the time, and that was one of the sponsors, the Wintergren Foundation and the Journal. And I even um, sat next to Claude Levi-Strauss, on the old rickety school bus that they arranged for us to drive from down by uh, the University of Chicago in the south side of Chicago up to the American Indian uh, Cultural Center, uh, which put on an event for the participants. So I was, you know, kind of up close and personal to um, all of that that was going on at the time. And of course, I don't think, well, when people talk, still talk about the word man as if it included everybody. Right. I don't think anybody was back then thinking that they were only talking about um, man, men. They were that they were really talking about humans and the role of hunting in human evolution. So much as it appears very androcentric, it wasn't quite as openly androcentric as it actually, you know, of course, turned out to be. Uh, in terms of focusing on the centrality of hunting. And of course, the next step is that, well, who are the hunters and so on and so forth. This is something we're still obviously uh, grappling with. Um, and that's another whole interesting story. But to, to get um, to my working with Janet, who, as you may know, she and I never met until that years. was such a right. surprise to hear. You did that entire article without meeting, and this is before email. We Crystal and I were trying to imagine. Yeah, yeah, that's just unbelievable. <laughs> well, it, it was an interesting story, and and the way I <clears throat> I got into it actually was through our colleagues in sociocultural anthropology in the early nineteen seventies. Because after graduate school, <clears throat> I moved with my then husband, John Fritz, to um, University of California at Santa Cruz, where he was hired on the archaeology as a faculty member. And as part of that, <clears throat> Adrian Zillman, a, a biological anthropologist um, who was very instrumental in some of the early work actually on the woman, the gatherer, uh, you may re remember some of her work, right. especially publishing with Nancy Tanner. 
Um, but Adrienne Zillman was one of John's and my husband's colleagues, and she was very welcoming. I mean, it was another, you know, and I did teach a course for Santa Cruz um, the first year we were there uh, in uh, prehistoric, in, in the anthropology of art. But anyway, um, and Adrian was part of a group of women, mostly the women from Stanford, the sociocultural people like Shelley uh, Rosaldo and Louise Lamphere, who were at the time organizing. And then eventually they published that um, book uh, about women and culture and women in culture and society, which was really sort of the first big edited volume in the early 1970s put out by sociocultural anthropology. And they had been very, they had several meetings at Adrian's house in Santa Cruz, and she invited me to come. And so that was when I sort of started ticking uh, what's going on in archaeology. I mean, there were papers, I mean, and people like Alice Kehoe and others will tell you right. that in the 1960s even, you know, but there were also papers by sociocultural people like June Nash talking about um uh, the Aztec women and and several other important social cultural people who were looking at some of the women in empires uh, situation. Um, and so I sort of got to thinking about it. And then, you know, to this very day, I cannot figure out or remember how I got involved with the American Anthropological Association's new Committee on the Status of Women in Anthropology, uh, a Committee on the Status of Women in Anthropology. I found myself in 1975 as the chair of that committee. Now I have no, I cannot remember anything. I've been trying to go through my paper. How did I get involved in this? How did I get on the committee? That's how you end up as but chair by, is somebody um, sneaks it 19- on you, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You go to the bathroom at that meeting. And, and they nominate back, you and vote you in. <laughs> Don't like, go to the bathroom during a meeting. That's the lesson there. Okay. <laughs> um, and then what happened is that committee decided that at the 1977 meetings of the American Anthropological Association, that it was time to put together a session on how were we thinking about things like gender? Was there a feminist perspective in each of the different subdisciplines? And I had to do it for archaeology. And that's when I went, whoa, there's nothing there. You know, there's hardly anything there. And my paper was called by chance because, yes, there was a little bit of reference to women in the past, but it was always just on a side business. So, for example, the very famous studies of the 1960s, as archaeologists did try to get into the social issues, the papers and research in the southwestern United States by Bill Longacre and Jim Hill uh, where they were really after residence, post-marital residence parent, p- patterns. Were they mat- matrifocal or matrilocal or were they patri- pat- patrilocal? And they used women as the potters, um, as the ones, oh, okay, we can trace the designs because the, they're all staying in the same place, mothers to daughters. We can see the design continuity was the argument. But they weren't interested in women as agents, women as active, symbolic controlling symbolism and designs or any of that. It was just like, oh, because the women were potters, then we could talk about um, post-marital residence patterns. Now, that was one of the few uh, cases that I could actually uh, bring up. And so then I said to, uh, I had a conversation or a chat with Mike Schiffer, 
who was then editing the Advances in Archaeological Method and Theory. And I said, hey, Mike, you really need to have a paper on where we are with gender and what are there any feminist perspectives in archaeology? And Mike, being a very good editor, said, no, we don't have one of those, and so you better do it. <laughs> and he said, and by the way, one other person has talked to me about that, and this is a woman named Janet Spector at the University of Minnesota. And I said, well, I don't know her. And he says, well, she also said we ought to do something. So he said, you should probably write her. So I wrote her, and then we decided to do something together. So that sort of is how that all got going. <laughs> but my interest was in, um, you know, came in through more of the sociopolitics of it uh, and on the status of women. And I had in 1972, I do have the papers from the, in 1972 had taught an undergraduate course at San Jose State, uh, where I was teaching then in the anthropology department called Men and Women in Prehistory. Oh. And it wasn't that I had a lot of information to talk about, but it, at least it was something. I don't know where I got that idea or why I decided to do that. You know, some of these things, um, you know, I just can't go back and find out how it right. happened. Or, yeah. Sometimes and, I feel like it comes to a, like a question yeah. that a student asks um, me will then, if I can't answer it right away, then I start thinking about it and researching it. And sometimes it becomes then a research question that I expand and delve into, you know, and, um, but it must have been something that was puzzling to you. And I just, um, I find it fascinating because it does seem to me just, just like the man, the hunter and women, the guy, those conferences, it did seem that the interaction between all the four subdisciplines, especially biological, cultural, and archaeology, and, and then I think to some degree linguistics, um, looking at those, because really like Longacre and Hill, they were looking at ethnographers and the sociocultural patterns of women being potters and some tribes were matrilineal, some were patrilineal, and then some had different residence patterns associated with kinship. And so it was very much kind of taking what you could know and then doing that direct historical approach and seeing how, what you could do with that as an archaeology. But then to try to say, well, far back in prehistory, what can we really look at? You know, I mean, but then also looking at like chimpanzees and different biological primate relatives. I feel like that became fertile ground for thinking about um, biological sex, gender, all these different things. And of course, archaeology is, I think, of such a fascinating place for that to all come together, the culture and the biology around gender and sex and all of that. Um, but that's, that's fascinating to, to hear. And again, it's, it's an astonishingly good article to have come about in that way and not have had you guys in the same place being able to yeah. edit that together. Yeah. Right. Um, I, it was, um, by then, by the time we were really working on it um, in the late seventies, early eighties, and it took quite a few years to get it published, I can tell you. First of all, mm -hmm. to hammer it out. Um, and then a number of uh, issues and so forth. We were inspired uh, by that time, of course, there was being developed a, a much more political consciousness of archeology. span People like Mark Leone had already right. begun to remind us of, um, and in fact, I believe we actually used a quote from Mark at the beginning of the article, uh, reminding us of, you know, that we actually, what we would all now say, have positionality, that we all have ideological, um, and that bias is just inevitable, um, which we, you know, certainly 
many people, but not everybody, have come to accept to a certain extent um, that we all have some sort of a standpoint, as um, feminists would say. Um, and so, uh, you know, and going through that, and of course, Janet um, definitely gave a lot of credit to her student at the time, um, uh, Mary Whalen, um, and uh, who had done an undergraduate research paper. So there, there were bits and pieces, and Janet was highly motivated. Uh, she had actually almost wanted to drop out of uh, graduate school at Wisconsin um, because she just didn't relate to any of the ways in which the stories were being told or the research mm -hmm. was being done. But she actually um, got re-engaged with the university, with university life and the academy because of the development of women's studies programs. Okay. And so, yeah. and then as you mentioned um, earlier, the other thing that happened, of course, with the 1970s was that the number of women in archaeology started to grow enormously. So there really was, I never did like demographic explanations or population increase explanations for things that archaeologists often use. But yeah. there was a population increase in the 70s of a much more diverse undergraduate and graduate student population. And so there was a much more resonant uh, potential audience for thinking about things differently. And then by the late 1970s and into the 1980s, of course, we get the rise of what came to be called post-processualism. Not that post-processualism as practiced or as advocated by especially the Cambridge group was very um, open to gender feminist issues. And Erica Engelstadt from Norway uh, wrote quite a, a wonderful critique about the post-processualists who wanted everything, but they seemed to, to pay attention to that. And then again, we really also have to give credit to the Norwegian women archaeologists because in the 1970s, they actually started an entire journal about women in archaeology. Um, and so they were really the first ones, if you will, out of the gate on, on all of this and um, uh, quite quite a uh, important his, historical uh, point, even though we didn't, because we didn't have email, because we didn't have the right ways of communicating that we day, uh, knowing what was going on in other places wasn't quite as easily spread um, around. And now, of course, you know, before things are even published, you get preprints. So, um, uh, but back then, so there was communication. Of course, Erica Engelstad um, is an American, and although she married a Norwegian that she met in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, same place where Janet Spector was, but some years later. So there are some little interesting um, connections. And that seems to be the way things um, come about, actually. But I, I love how that in that um, article, you, you, you guys point out right from the get go that as a science, archaeology is neither objective nor inclusive, you know, and that there are these pervasive and, and passive biases. And, and I, it just must have been interesting to sort of hear how people reacted to that. But I'm going to turn yeah, over to Crystal yeah. for the next question. <laughs> so, so um, Meg, you followed up this article with an edited volume um, that was co-edited with Joan Garrow, who we've mentioned before, called Engendering Archaeology, Women and Prehistory. Now, is that the right name of the book? Women in Production in, in Prehistory. Pre Women right? in Production yeah. in Prehistory. Yeah. Engendering Archaeology, even though one of my French colleagues once made a mock-up of the cover and rephrased it to Endangering Archaeology. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. oh, that's terrible. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, right. Well, I, I still have it. It was fun. But it's Engendering Archaeology, colon, 
Women and Production in Prehistory. Okay. And so that was published in 1991. And in this volume, you included pieces by a lot of different archaeologists on a wider spectrum of topics, all related to gender, feminism, women's work, women's labor, including weaving and cooking, etc. You mentioned in the preface, and I thought this was so interesting, um, quote, the enormity of the task of compiling the first such volume was immediately Immediately obvious. There was simply no archaeological literature to cite as contributions, nor was there any defined circle of experts to fall back upon, end quote. So I think that kind of says it all right there, you know, that you guys were starting from scratch. And, and even mentioning, you know, the, the um, archaeologists in Norway, you guys were still having a hard time compiling any of these sources and, and really citing anything. So can you just describe for us a little bit about, you know, what that felt like putting this volume together in a collaborative sense with these other professionals, but also can you talk a little bit about um, what it means to do archaeology as a feminist? And I'm sure that you guys were kind of figuring that out at this point. So can you speak to all of that for us? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, you may recall that in 1985, Joan Jarrow published a really fantastic article uh, in American Antiquity as part of the celebration of 50 years of the Society for American Archaeology. And her article there was really all about um, sort of a gendered division of labor in archaeology and how, you know, most of the big research projects were directed by men and then all the lab work was assigned to women and the high value was being placed on the excavation and the um, lab work was, you know, well, it had to be done and, you know, women were... Uh, expendable and they should just, you know, sit there in the lab and, you know, Joan, uh, anyway, so she had a wonderful, wonderful article. So it was very clear that some of us were on the sort of same pages. And, um, and um, actually, uh, you know, it was suggested to Joan um, by Ian Hodder, who was then the editor of the series of books of which Engendering Archaeology was one, uh, that maybe, you know, uh, if she feels that way about the field, she should actually maybe, you know, get a group of people together to to do a conference on it. And she approached me and asked me if I would uh, be willing and interested in joining her on it. So, again, we didn't know each really well. We didn't have a longstanding uh, professional or even personal relationship, although we she had had another little mini career before going back to graduate school. But we were, were basically we were born the same year, so we're the same same age anyway. And, um, and then when we sat down to try to do it, we also realized that if we're going to, well, when Ian asked her to do a book, she, she said, like, I can't write a book. There's no, who would be in the book? What, what is there to put in a book? You know, I, I don't, it's, it's not like if you did a, at the time, if you were doing a book on settlement systems in archaeology, well, you'd have too long of a list of people and it would be a challenge who, you know, how to, you know, sort of reduce the list where if we, she sat around and wanted to do a book, well, there wasn't anybody to really have co- articles. And we thought that because of that, one actually needed a conference and really to bring people together. Was there, was there any there there? Was there going to be a field? You know, could we have examples or whatever? And um, so, um, so in order to do that, we realized that in order to have a conference, you need funding. In order to have funding, you have to have a 
proposal and something that more or less fits within the rubric of the funding agency. So we actually had made two, I thought, really key, very creative decisions. And, you know, I don't know where they came from and at whose ideas they were or whatever. But basically, the first one was that since there was no list of potential attendees, we were just going to have to ask colleagues who really knew a particular material or a particular aspect of prehistory or archaeology to think again about their stuff through the lens of gender. And I can tell you, you know, so that's why we have the Mexican um, work by Liz Brumfield on weaving. That's why we have Ruth Tringham on architecture. That's why Joan wrote about lithics. That's why um, the original person per person at the conference was Prue Rice, but ended up actually being Rita Wright writing about <clears throat> pottery. Um, anyway, so we we thought about people who were experts in a in a kind of subfield of archaeology, but that had never, you know, as Ruth said, she went kicking and screaming. Well, she did go kicking and screaming. I don't have anything to offer. I don't know what I can. What am I going to do? Right kind of thing, and um, and. and push everybody. Oh, what happens if you think about your materials through another whole lens, another whole perspective? So that I thought turned out to be really a brilliant stroke of asking people to push themselves in some ways. And then the point of the conference was to push everybody further. And uh, so in order to do that, we invited, uh, and because we also got some money from the Winter Grand Foundation who always likes to fund something that has an international participant in it. We invited Henrietta Moore, a well-known and well-established feminist uh, social anthropologist by that time, although she did her dissertation in archaeology um, and wrote the very excellent books, which is still worthwhile, Space, Text, and Gender, about the use of space and gender in um, East African societies, where she still works mm -hmm. in Kenya. And um, Irene Silverblatt, uh, who was a social anthropologist who had done some really interesting work on women in the Inca empire and in uh, the Andes. And then we also, for international, we invited, a, we wanted to have men's voices as well. We invited Peter White from Australia. Um, and um, so we had three discussants who really pushed everybody. And then, you know, although she's always been a very subtle, thoughtful um collaborative kind of voice. Patty Jo Watson was fabulous mm, at the yeah. conference. She, she also really uh, asked those kinds of, of great questions. And then they were people, nobody had ever really been to a conference with each other before. So it was all completely new relationships and so forth. And the reason we went for production uh, and labor was that that actually was something that we thought we could approach and did successfully approach the National Science Foundation on because it actually was that kind of materiality, the sort of using archaeological data and evidence. And that's why we went from really sort of an economics and labor and, you know, thinking about women's labor as a way in which to start thinking about women. Because, of course, you know, when you actually look at the archaeological record, I don't know why people think it's so easy to assign most of the um, remain, archaeological remains to men there's no better reason to assign it to men than there is for women. I mean, you know, if you, when, when you say, well, I think women did this and you say, no, no, men did it. Well, how do you know men did it? 
Well, we don't know. We just assume, you know, and so you can get right to the bias, you know, the basic assumptions right away. But anyway, so that's what we did. The conference was held in 89. And then what was really interesting and uh, before she passed away, Joan Jarrow gave her her papers on the conference to the Smithsonian Archives. Mm-hmm. And I'm organizing mine to add to that. Uh, it's the Joan Jarrow um, Archive of Anthropological Papers. And because the difference between the papers that were given at the conference and the papers that were done for the book really shows a fantastic growth, um, changing of ideas. I mean, it was it was just wonderful. And of course, one of the most exciting ones, um, as you, I think, have identified, is that by the time Janet Spector came to the conference, where she had originally said she was going to talk about the task differentiation framework that she included in our article in 94, she sort of bagged it. She said, that, that's ridiculous. I, I that's That doesn't make any sense to me. It just is box checking. It's, you know, it's all about gender attribution. And really, there are much richer and more interesting and more engaging stories to be told. And she gave her a preliminary version of what became her wonderful, uh, wonderful book, What This All Means. I gave a preliminary version of that paper at that conference. And that was what her chapter was. So that was, you know, for everybody, that was, you know, really quite a, a liberating and exciting shock. So uh, let me so just I interrupt really... here, Meg. So just for our listeners, what this all means, the all is spelled A-W-L. So can you tell our listeners what an all is and um, and what Janet Spector did with that that article, which eventually became a book? That was so, right. so revolutionary kind of, yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful book. And, you know, it, it's going to be timeless in terms of its a, mm. uh, appeal and, 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 you know, to get people who can see what archaeology can, can say and how it can make you really think and really get engaged with the lives of the people, which is really what most of us really want out of archaeology. But an all, A-W-L, is a piece of bone or antler that is shaped in a certain way to especially be used in the working of hides. Um, And it's, you know, it's an all bone, bone all. Um, And uh, what Jana did was in the excavations they were doing in collaboration with a Native American uh, tribe in Minnesota um, was uh, the, uh, was a, she encountered in the excavation, they encountered this bone all Uh, that had these little punctuation marks in it. And so what she did was she used that bone all as sort of a a baseline for creating an imaginary but realistic story about the young woman who must have been the user of this bone all and, uh, and then used that as the core out of which to talk about the usual things archaeologists talk about, the site, the, the kind of people that were there, the kind of activities that went on and so on and so forth. But it all flowed from the all. Um, and, uh, and then for her, the meaning of the, of the, of the whole uh, thing that archaeology was doing was the, 
the, the bone all and the way in which the all figured in the life of a young girl who was learning the trades and learning the practices and the skills uh, that would be part of the central kinds of things that people needed in their lives. So, and it's eloquently, lyrically written, uh, very engaging. It's not long, it's not detailed. Some people have criticized it because all of the data, so to speak, the list of animals and plants that they found at the site are in the appendix. And, well, that doesn't look like a very real site report. But, oh, it is a great site report. And so to read what this all means. And then just again before she passed away, Joan Jarrow published her major uh, publication on the excavations she did in South America uh, on the site called, of all things, it was called Utopia, spelled Y-O-Utopia. And that also is a fantastic story where she talks about the decisions that are made, the assumptions that are made, and um, and so a really much more, if you will, real life um, account. And it, it, again, is also uh, absolutely wonderful for telling us how archaeology really works. I am so glad um, you you took the time to explain that because something that we often talk about on the podcast is um, the power of that narrative structure that's often missing in archaeology. So historians have gotten quite good at the the power of that narrative and taking a little bit of liberty to really think about how to tell a story that's that's based on those verifiable facts in history that can be documented. And I think what's beautiful about a book like that, first of all, it's so much more approachable for undergraduates and and the public. Um, it's certainly based in reality, but it it creates a, a a human past that we can relate to. Um, it's the reason people read books and, you know, have have empathy for others is that kind of storytelling. And I think so many of us in archaeology have had that experience. Um, when I was going through school, all of this work was coming out by all these women, which was so exciting because on the one hand, there was like settlement hierarchies and emergence of state, and it was all these quantifiable things or optimal foraging theory, which to me just, there were no people in it. There were no emotions. There were no real lives in there. And then you'd start to see these women. So for me, in that book, Elizabeth Broomfield's article, on the Aztecs and looking at the spindle whirls and looking at um, uh, cooking on the kamals and things like that and how as the Aztec state was was growing and having to um, increasingly co-opt women's labor and, and people were having to produce more for tribute and supporting of troops that were going places, the impact this had on these lives. So taking these very ordinary spindle whirls and asking someone to look through the lens of gender produced for me something that I've never forgotten since I've been in graduate school and, and just gave me so many ideas about what could be done and what stories could be told where all of a sudden you could envision the lives of people in a new way. And I, I just don't think for me there was any going back after that. So I just think that's a wonderful example. And, um, and anyway, I don't know if you had any other, other favorites, you know, aside <laughs> from the ones you've mentioned, because those really stand out. Well, being here in California, <clears throat> I certainly appreciated um, Tom Jackson's chapter, um, which, you know, took something that is sort of mar- often marginalized in archaeology, which are these large granite outcrops that have these um, um, 
grinding stone places in it, deep um, sort of what we call bedrock mortars in them, uh, and pointing to them, well, what you're looking at is, is a, it's women's labor. You're looking at women and children out on these granite outcrops, and you know, they're, they're inches and inches deep. And so you're looking at native women out there together you know, gossiping, chatting, singing, collaborating. Communal labor, yep. Yeah. And, and with various children and so forth out there, you know, doing this incredible labor um, that was absolutely the basics. So when you think about, quote unquote, the overemphasis on hunting and, and meat, uh, what you're really seeing are the, the fundamentals, the baseline, um, get, you know, resource that at certain times of the year here in California. So, you know, that's taking something that's, you know, archaeologists don't often talk about much more than pottery or stone tools or whatever, but suddenly talking about women's labor in um, bedrock mortars, uh, you know, you, you can just envision, you know, what, what might have been going on at, at places like that. So I think it really expands the scope of what archaeology can say uh, rather than actually, you know, as a replacement for what archaeology can say. So I think that honoring women's labor as Mm -hmm. as fundamental. I mean, you can't have a society without women. And so if you're not looking for it and trying to explain and understand what the women were doing, there's no way you can understand a society. And I feel like especially as you would get into more complex societies, the, the women would sort of fall off. And the tendency would be in the Paleolithic to ignore them too. And I think until we had really good hunter-gatherer studies, you know, and and then realizing how much women produce of the overall, you know, calories consumed, uh, I think it really just just changed the role. It's one of my favorite things to teach students about because those assumptions are still out there everywhere, you know, um, and they're not supported by the data we have. So, Well, the, yes, exactly. And the, you know, for me, for example, just even the notion of what constitutes hunting mm, uh, yep. and why it therefore has to be men. If if you think hunting is being actually somebody, you know, taking a spear and getting it into an animal, well, that is such a small part of hunting. I right. mean, there's first of all the sort of um, going out on the landscape and understanding what's going on. And I think, um, you know, women in, in the uh, hunting gathering societies of ethnographically described where the women are actually, while they're out gathering, they actually, oh yeah, this is where the emu were. This is where the, you know, the other kinds of animals were and bring that information back. So there's the information collecting that goes on that goes into hunting. Um, and then of course, once something's killed, you know, it's got to get processed. It's got to get just divided up. And, you know, for example, Peggy Jodry has worked with um, particular tools and Paleo-Indian kits that get overlooked uh, because it's not a point of some sort of projectile point of some place. But these are women's knives and they're the ones that are butchering. You know, they're the ones that are Mm -hmm. cutting it all up. So that's all part. Hunting is such a large um, and much more inclusive set of activities. And, you know, the other thing is, if everybody wasn't participating and doing something, they wouldn't make it. No, they I wouldn't mean, make they, it. I know. They needed it. Oh, I know. Yeah, and then all of the meat captured in nets. Like, there's so many other things, even aside from mm-hmm. how you hunt. I mean, there's just so many ways, and it's it's. I think it's been made the field much more interesting, honestly, mm-hmm. by yeah. by by yeah. investigating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more. 
complicated and I love complicating things. That's yes, the best I know thing. that yes. that is that complexity is interesting and fascinating. Um, I have a when you were talking, um, Meg, I had a memory come to mind of being out in a field um, with Alice Kehoe a few years ago. And she was it was a teepee ring site. And uh, she was there with a group of Blackfeet elders. And um, I was just tagging along and we were walking beside her and she reached down and picked up a scraper. And she said, here, you hold this. And she just handed it to me and I put it in my hand. And she said, that wasn't that wasn't made by a man that was made by a woman. She says it fits in your hand as in a woman's hand that would not fit in a man's hand. And it just all became clear. (laughs) (laughs) So that made me think of that when you were saying that. I mean, it is it's just so clear in that way. Right. But right. but you know, continuing our conversation about complexity, I want to talk a little bit about um, Maria Gambudis and her work. Um, she was publishing about the same time, the same time frame that we've been talking about, and um, she published a book called "The Language of the Goddess," and that was a text um, that also highlighted women in prehistory, and it really speaks to what. Gimbutas calls a goddess-worshipping, earth-centered culture during the Neolithic. And uh, you were critical of this, um, and you published critiques of Gimbutas' work at this time. And so um, I just wanted to ask the question, why were you critical of this work? And and have your thoughts changed over time um, from when you were publishing these critiques? Right. Well, first of all, of course, the critiques were co-authored um, and with a absolutely brilliant and very solid uh, archaeologist of the Neolithic, my colleague here at Berkeley, Ruth Tringham, and um, who actually um, long had some concerns about the way in which, again, labels were being given to things, a a piece of stone as as being called an altar. Well, you know, that evokes all sorts of things for us. And we do this all the time by labeling things. So we really, that's one place where we really have to start. But, but our, the kind of concern that Ruth and I had, we actually taught a course called the Archaeology of the Goddess. And we published two different articles um, about, uh, about this. One actually in a volume that was uh, edited by, um, um, a uh, sociocultural anthropologist based on sort of how gender in the 1990s was being dealt with in a different subdiscipline, Michaela uh, Leonardo. And um, so our main concern with a lot of what uh, Maria did, Maria was a very good archaeologist. She was a very good field archaeologist. And at one point, uh, she really just got so involved and in this idea that you know these societies at that time were completely female-centered, uh, earth-loving. Uh, it was the 70s. It was a time when everybody was getting involved in the environmental movement um, and so forth. But the problem for us was that having a female-centered only kind of interpretation is not a way to deal with the male-centered only interpretation that, you know, that it's going to be com- more complicated whether you prefer to start with the male-centered or the female-centered. You can't just rule out the other actors in the past. And uh, so I think our main concern, and it still is, is that these were overly biased in another direction, even if you wanted to add women, so to speak, it was not to 
uh, emphasize women at the exclusion of men or any other kinds of social actors. I mean, we have to think that our happy little division, which is being wonderfully challenged these days with um, transgendered and agendered or gender neutral Absolutely. or non-binary or whatever you want to call them, yeah. um, which, you know, young people these days just take for granted. I mean, that's just the, those are the possibilities, you know, which I love the way in which is really interrupting our, um, in, a, in a wonderful way, our notion of, of binaries, that there's only males and females, and there's only men and women. Uh, there are many other possibilities. We have to really entertain that for the past as well. I mean, we know in some societies there are individuals who were in ethnographically documented societies, individuals who even all the time or part time or whatever had a number of different kind of social identities as different kinds of social actors. So um, even just suggesting that, you know, we've got to add women, it's not to add women and stir. But it's to, to um, you know, take into account women as yet another variable of among many uh, that could be uh, could be active. So I think, you know, and of course, the thing with Maria was that she found a receptive audience in popular culture um, and many uh, women's groups felt very much empowered by this. And, you don't ever want to sort of interrupt that. Ruth, <laughs> Ruth and I did did do that a little bit, but we we had. Uh, they did a, a video uh, with a star hawk who was one of her main followers up here in the San Francisco Bay Area and so forth. And we interacted with them. And the, the irony, and I think this is wonderful. And if you have a chance, if anybody wants to, in December of this coming year, Ruth will be giving the annual Maria Gambudis lecture oh. at uh, the Chicago uh, Field Museum, uh, which, you know, will be really quite something for her to sort of try to place Maria uh, in a contemporary uh, context and what her concerns were about Maria while, of course, still honoring her in many ways. So uh, she finds it to be quite ironic that she has just been asked to give the honorary Maria Gambudis lecture at the Field Museum. So, and I'm sure it'll be recorded. So we'll be able to check that out. Oh, that's that. that's yeah. wonderful. We're yeah. just going to take a quick station break. Yeah. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman. We're speaking today with Meg Conkey about her book, Engendering Archaeology, and the role of gender and feminism in archaeology. Well, thanks. Thanks for an- answering that question, Meg. That'll be interesting. We'll have to um, watch that um, after the fact, probably. But um, So, Meg, I had the opportunity a few years ago at the Society for American Archaeology meetings in Vancouver. Um, what a great meeting that was. What a beautiful place to have a Society for Archaeology meeting. Um, you are part of, of a symposium called Archaeologies of the Heart, Exploring the Role of Emotion and Spirit in Archaeological Research and Practice. And I was at this symposium. I was drawn to it just, of course, by the name. And I loved every minute of it because it really spoke to my heart, of course, but also really spoke to my mind and the way that I see archaeology moving in the future and really opening archaeology into new realms and thinking about it in new ways. And so you gave a talk on... um, that was called Field Walking and Walking the Field. So can you talk about this session and your involvement in it and what it meant to you? And and can you also give us a quick overview of your presentation that day? 
<clears throat> yeah, well, of course, the, this has been published now, uh, most of the papers, and I did not contribute a substantive paper there because on the paper that I gave at the session because I am using some of that material for another paper um, that I had already promised, and so I actually just wrote an epilogue to the um, to the whole volume, sort of summarizing what I where I thought we were going. Uh, with such an approach. It was a fantastic session and it was really, really inspiring. Um, and I think for many of us who were in that session, the whole idea was that what we're doing as archaeologists, and, uh, and this is probably across the board, is not just an objective, get up in the morning, do what you need to do, go back to bed, and that's that. And especially given that it's a field science and that we get deeply involved with the people and places where we're trying to uh, sort of coax um, out of them uh, some connections to the people and the places of the past. And that many of our decisions and our actions and so forth are guided as much by our hearts as they are by our minds. And that that should be taken into consideration my own presentation there, Field Walking and Walking the Field, refers to a long-term survey project that I directed in the south of France in the foothills of the French Pyrenees uh, to actually find traces, if possible, which we did, uh, or else the project wouldn't have gone on for so long, but traces of the uh, Paleolithic peoples who acted, lived, engaged, and whatever, not in caves because we were sort of trying to counter the dominant narrative that you know of the caveman narrative so to speak and and that people were mobile they were out in the i mean of course you know when you sat down to it you realize that people didn't either collect firewood in a cave nor did they kill a bison in a cave but you know they had to have gone outside some of the time but it was really uh, trying to make that point and for me that whole project was a project of the heart because at the time that I conceived of the project, just towards the middle to the late 1980s, my then husband at the time, Les Roundtree, and I were commuting. His job was at San Jose State and mine was in upstate New York. And we had two daughters and we were trying to hold a marriage together, which we did over 10 years before I got the job at Berkeley and we could actually live together again. And so everybody said, ah, how are you going to live together? But anyway, um, so the, it, what we found was that if we're going back and forth across the country uh, to um, our various jobs and, and so forth with one daughter here and one daughter there and back and forth and taking leaves and so forth, well, then when it came time to summer for two academics, you know, we decided that a what would be a project that we could work on together? And, um, and where would that be? And um, so he was a, he's a big mountain outdoor person and had done his dissertation in uh, Austria, on, in the Austrian Alps. And um, so we concocted this project to do this survey where he could do the historic land use, trained in geography, environmental studies. He could do the historic land use and I would do the archeology. span And so it was a project that came from the heart and it was a way in which we could spend some time together. But also we ended up, of course, doing something that really many people, nobody in the area, they told us we wouldn't find anything. And we asked the, my colleagues, my archeology span colleagues in France, why wouldn't we find anything? And they said, well, because nobody's found anything. And then I said, well, has anybody looked? <laughs> no. 
And they, they thought, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to walk around the landscapes? Oh, why would anybody want to walk around beautiful French landscape? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was such a, uh, I mean, it still is. And, and um, we've, we, in 2006, our team encountered an open air site of, and just a really unique one. So we, we have been excavating, but, but after, you know, basically 10, 12 years of walking around landscapes, they get into your heart and, you know, it becomes a place that you feel connected to and your imagination can work really, really well. You can see what it might've looked like when it wasn't so forested. You can imagine the kinds of things and um, that might've gone on in many more ways. You can discover many of the places where the resources were, whether it was Flint or uh, mineral materials for pigments or whatever and um you know so it just really does become a place in one's own heart uh as well as sort of for me it was really sort of solving some of the issues in my heart and then at the same time we actually ended up contributing new information to to archaeology and one that was an information that was less about you know sort of these you know cavemen and more about you know people on the move and you know that's that's much harder to pin down archaeologically but it's much more realistic uh, in some ways. So um, anyway, so that that was a great, the book is wonderful. Um, and I think it's way too expensive, but it's. I yeah, I, can, <laughs> I can't, can't afford it. But. <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, nonetheless, it's um, it, it was a great move. And the other thing about it was that it really brought together and it came, it was inspired by both feminist and indigenous perspectives, mm-hmm. the way in which our native increasing number of Native Americans who are doing archaeology are bringing a whole new dimension and adding that to the, the new dimensions of the Janet Specter sort um, that feminism has brought to archaeology as well. Um, and so I, I thought that, you know, that combination, I actually once wrote an article about the intersectionality between feminist and indigenous archaeologies. And, you know, I, I see that there's a lot, um, of course, for our Native scholars, there, you know, sovereignty is, is probably much, much the much important thing. But, you know, nonetheless, um, it's it was, um, you know, really, that was the inspiration between Kishna and Sonia and others who co-organized it. Um, and so uh, it, it yeah, hopefully archaeology will admit that we have feelings, that yes. we have connections, yeah. that, you know, we're interested in the reason we do certain research problems is because we because we we're, we're interested in them. You know, the more passionate, the more engaged you are with the subject matter, the better you will be about it rather than just sort of being not interested or whatever. So, you know, I think it really is more honest. It's a much more honest mm-hmm. archaeology mm-hmm. to think about what is the role of our heart and mm-hmm. what is the role of our own personal experience mm-hmm. and how, I mean, it's part of sort of cutting back on the bias. How has our own experiences, have they influenced uh, what what it is we want to, to work on and therefore um are we falling into certain traps because of that or are we actually expanding and um, making the archaeology uh, a more humane and human archaeology? Yeah, I think it's very interesting with the shift towards indigenous archaeology because um, this connection to place has been such an important aspect of what indigenous people in general have been talking about, how the way a landscape is treated, what it means to them knowing ancestors were there. And I think 
uh, we feel it as people who've been out on the landscape. People feel it um, if they're not indigenous, you know, but I think that in admitting and acknowledging people in the past have always had that connection too and an understanding of their own ancestors and where they're from. I think it makes us better archaeologists. And I, and I agree. I think acknowledging the feelings of um, ourselves and that people in the past had them, you know, it just, it makes for a richer discipline for sure. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of finish off talking about the, the French Paleolithic by, by just asking you with all the research you've done there, um, can you kind of just give us a sense of what has been learned maybe over the last couple decades about the, the Paleolithic, which for our listeners, just a reminder that it's this period where people were still hunter-gatherers, we're still talking about the Stone Age. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, for you, we're talking about the Upper Paleolithic, in the, so, so 40,000 years to about, what, 20,000 years ago. Well, we usually think about anatomically modern humans ourselves coming into Europe around 40,000 years. And um, so, and of course, um, there are Stone Age cultures of hunters, mobile hunters and gatherers all over the world. So it's not just in, in Europe, but I've been working on the so-called upper or later Stone Age of the, um, of, your, of Southwestern Europe in particular. Um, and I think what, what we've, what, ha, what have we learned? Uh, one of the wonderful things about archaeology is that our forensic skills have gotten so amazing that we really are able to uh, say many, many more things. And so I, I love the work of people like Olga Sofer, who um, actually was able to take little teeny tiny pieces of uh, clay that they'd just thrown in the back room because they weren't stone tools or they weren't big animal bones and show that they actually had um, impressions of weaving on them from house floors from 26,000 years ago. And then that the style of weaving on there actually matched the style of weaving uh, on the headdresses of some very famous female figurines. And so that you can then say that whoever did the figurines actually must have been a weaver, that they knew how to make all of those kinds of cords and knots and and everything. So being able to move from a little teeny tiny piece in, of a clay, burned clay that had been rejected, and then also finding, oh yes, oh, let's look at the pollen. And the pollen shows us that indeed the plants that would have been necessary for weaving are here. And so you're mentioning earlier about that uh, net hunting with nets is right. possible, you know, well, if they're making weaving for mats, they probably could have been making nets and well, I mean, so it's these little tiny things and this ability to, and the same thing with people who've been studying the cave art, for example, uh, where they have been able to, to show that, you know, inside a cave, well, there are no big archaeological sites in there where there's this beautiful, fantastic art, but we've got the pigments and we can see how the pigments are processed we can actually take the pigments apart and see that they're recipes how to put the pigments together so they the pigments stay together and they stay on the wall and using what they did but oh yes look when we find the same color on a piece of antler or bone in another cave site they're using the same recipe so we now can start making connection by going, so this very wonderful forensic ability that archaeologists have developed with chemistry and geochemistry and so forth has really, really um, uh, been enormously exciting for being able to actually get way into the lives 
far beyond optimal foraging theory. I mean, actually, when <laughs> exactly. one of the big jokes we've always had about, had about genders, they said, well, you can't see gender in the past. And you said, well, whoever saw a subsistence system? There I mean, you no, go. We, we take some big abstract concepts, like whoever saw an fo- optimal foraging system, you infer it, you know, right. you use different building blocks and you put it together. Well, if you if you could see an optimal foraging system, then maybe I'd agree we can't see gender, but you can't see any of that stuff. It's all us. It's the inferences that we're making. So I think, you know, in our own work, we've we've been doing this um, survey and now we have documentation of people across the landscape in amazing ways that nobody ever imagined. They thought that their lives were these little nodes, this cave, this cave, this cave. But they're actually, you know, coming and going and out there and doing all sorts of things. It's a much more wonderfully complicated picture. And now we have this archaeological site where we've uh, excavated and found, much to our amazement, this incredible stone structure in the open air. um, Dating to probably about 19,000 years ago. Whoa. Goodness, you know, who knew about that? And then there's pigments all over the place. So, um, you know, I think it's been very exciting um, in many, many ways um, that we are actually adding details, you know, sort of like coloring in the the outlines that we've had. And we're now being able to fill it in um, in in different ways about and and at a much more micro scale. I Mm -hmm. think it's the moving back and forth between the micro and the macro scale that really is one of the strengths of archaeology to do so that it, and it's I think fascinating. Really yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love the story of um, the the handprints and the cave art and the the index finger and the ring finger and testosterone and estrogen oh, in the yeah. womb have the length so that you can actually look at the handprints and then see is it more likely to have been a male or female. So oh, regardless of the size, yeah. it's the relationship. And so oh. now we we know quite well that there's very likely that women are, are doing painting in the caves and it just changes the whole nature of how we and I, I think for students that resonates really clearly it's bringing sort of that scientific biological information together with this cultural and, re- and challenging you know these ideas really well so that we can start to think um, more creatively and understand better what, what we're seeing yeah yeah I always suggest to people that if they really want to get a really wonderful idea about um, how people lived in the Paleolithic. You've got to read fiction. And there's, uh, I have, well, I long taught a course called Life in Ice Age Europe Through Fiction. And uh, there are enough books that you can read, but the best one is Reindeer Moon. And um, I really recommend anybody uh, to read it. It's, um, it's written by a woman named um, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, who is of the famous Marshall family, who went off to South Africa. And oh, she's the one they made the films Tom. of the, of the, oh my goodness. I didn't know I'm she Marcia. wrote. Yeah. She's in that family. She wow. was the daughter of the family. Yeah. And so she was very inspired by the life of animals that she encountered there. And this, she's written quite a few books. So she, she had a really dogs. firsthand account of what it takes to hunt and gather and live that life. Cause they were, they were really out there in the, in the bush in the Kalahari. Right. So it's called Reindeer Moon, and you can probably get it on Amazon used, I think. But anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And, um, and it's my that. favorite of all of the ones. That, Sounds like a book club uh, book read, to read, me. Read, yeah. I read, read five or six of them, and I, you know, I, can, I can send you the list of what to read. But anyway, and there's some about North American prehistory as well. But, but um, I just would say, 
that's how we're going to expand our abilities to think about them is to actually read fiction, right? Yeah. Of all sorts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And kind of expand our imaginations a little bit to to encompass those archaeologies. Well, yeah. and I think it stimulates more interesting questions. Mm-hmm. And then you start to think about how would I get the data to answer that question? But you have to start right. envisioning the interesting questions of, of everyday life that then create patterns that you might see. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. great. So, so Meg, as we kind of um, wind down here, we want to ask you about um, the field of archaeology. And, you know, it's it's changed dramatically since you entered it in the um, in the 1960s, 1970s. So what excites you about the field today? What research, what movements are encouraging you as we move forward in archaeology? Well, I think it's a kind of tumultuous time right now, and I think we're at a point of considerable transition, uh, at least here in North America, but to a certain extent, many of the kinds of things that are going on in our cultural worlds today are also going on in the cultural worlds of other countries and so forth. I mean, so um, while my view is pretty much, you know, North American centric because of where I am and and um, what I've experienced, but I think the social changes around us is um, and the demand, social demands around us um, are impacting, especially our graduate students these days in terms of their wanting uh, archaeology to be, in, in large part, a, a, a contributor to social justice. So I think um, the ways, I mean, an archaeology can contribute to lots of different things. I don't think it has contributed as much to social justice in the past as it can today. I'd hate to see it be only, that's the only thing that it's about. But I think um, there has been sort of a, an awakening um, of that. I've been I'm involved with a a task force of the Society for American Archaeology on decolonizing archaeology. And we've started publishing a group of um, series of articles in the archaeological record. One that just came out in May uh, had our sort of our first article. But I I think being involved with um, a better understanding of what our work is about and who it's for and who benefits and who doesn't and uh, how to, how to take that into account without losing, um, without losing track of the fact that, you know, heritage is a political thing and uh, heritage is a political uh, act and to better understand um, the political nature of archeology. span And, uh, and it doesn't have to be as dramatic as, you know, the way we, we often talk about it. Oh, well, it was just the Nazis who did that. We're, we're just as much implicated in different and more, more subtle ways. Um, and so, and that combined, I mean, I think um, ancient DNA has really begun to revolutionize things. Fascinating. And actually, yeah, yeah. the DNA studies in general. So I think there's going to be all sorts of new uh, and and exciting and unexpected, which is great. I love it when, you know, when surprise, I mean, um, feminists say that what we should do is we should always be surprised. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's be surprised. Let's surprise everybody. Let's surprise ourselves. Um, Cynthia Enlow was really sort of the great advocate of um, that feminists should be both curious as well as be, be prepared to be surprised. And as uh, you know, so if something seems like, oh yeah, that's natural. No, 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 no wait a minute. Let's look at this again, uh, kind of thing. So I think um, that uh, the ancient DNA, these forensic techniques that I mentioned and uh, going back and looking at old collections in new ways or taking old problems and looking at them in new ways, I think will really, is really the kind of thing that's, that, that's happening and expanding the scope 
I know that there's a big movement um, of uh, the archaeology of the contemporary, uh, which I think also, you know, looking at ourselves in some ways or recent things can really help people understand the power and the possibilities of, of, of archaeology. So those would be just some of the things that I'd say are ongoing. Yeah. Mm, yeah. 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 Well, you, you've given us um, a lot to think about and um, a lot of good book recommendations. Too. Yes, yes. So I, I really, <laughs> I would like down. to do a whole <laughs> class like that too on archaeology through fiction. So now I have a whole new set of ideas, yeah. but Meg, we could, we could definitely keep talking to you all day, um, but our time is running short and it's been so nice to have time to talk with you, to talk with uh, you about your work um, and, and early work on gender and feminism and, and also about where you see the field going. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Thank you and take care and um, good luck with what you're doing. It's great to have something like this. So that's really good. All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Meg. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up on your app every week. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes. Um, We also put links to include articles, books, etc., whatever we discussed during the podcast. So we'll be listing all these books that we talked about in there. Um, Thanks again to Meg, and thanks to all of you listening, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the Past. Past. And a big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy, and original music by Lawson Alegria. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.